it's also when you open up from the west, from the outside, uh, you look at Hong Kong cases. Uh, so I think uh, for given the 1.4 billion uh, population in China, so so especially in the uh, the rural area, whether it's ready or not, okay. that's another factor. Okay, yeah, then, well, thank you for that analysis. Much appreciated. That's Shannon Wu, who's the chairman of Zhengrong Bao. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a look at the markets in Australia. The SX200 uh, is up 0.4%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen 0.6%. Cosby in South Korea also up 0.6%. Does look like, though, it's going to be volatile trading in Hong Kong this morning. Uh, the Hang Seng currently looking like uh, it's going to open about 30 points lower. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, back chats with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two rain patches in the morning, bright during the day. Maximum temperature around 24 degrees and it's going to become fine with temperatures rising in the next few days. 20 degrees right now, 89% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Ben Che with the half-hour news. Australia have stunned defending champions Fiji at the Hong Kong Sevens, winning 20 points to 17. It's the first time they've won the tournament in nearly 35 years. More details from Todd Harding. Fiji scored two tries early on to amass a 12-0 lead, but Australia, who last won the title in Hong Kong in 1988, clawed it back to 12-5 with a try from Henry Hutchison before the gong went for the end of the first half. Shortly after the second half started, Tim Clements made it 12-10 before Waisei Nakuku extended Fiji's lead again to 17-10. But Australia had their tails up and Henry Hutchison got his second try of the match. With time running out and Fiji down to six men, Nathan Lawson crossed the line to give the Aussies a dramatic victory and leave their players in tears. Chief Executive John Lee says the success of the Sevens has proven that Hong Kong has ushered in a new chapter and returned to the world stage. He also described the event as a demonstration of the Pearl of the Orient shining brighter than ever. The CE watched some of the games yesterday and presented the Australians with a trophy. The head of the United Nations has told a major climate summit that global warming is changing the world at a catastrophic pace. Antonio Guterres was speaking at the start of the COP27 summit in Egypt. In a video message, he said the planet was sending a distress signal, and he described the UN's latest climate report as a chronicle of chaos. The latest state of the global climate report is a chronicle of climate chaos. As the World Meteorological Organization so, so clearly Change is happening with catastrophic speed, devastating lives and livelihoods on every continent. The last eight years have been the warmest on record, making every heat wave more intense and life-threatening, especially for vulnerable populations. Sea levels are rising at twice the speed of the 90s. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. For the first part of today's programme, we're looking at tobacco controls, uh, including the idea of creating a smoke-free generation. The Council on Smoking and Health has proposed that uh, local residents who were born in 2009 or after 
should be banned from buying cigarettes by 2027. New Zealand has already adopted the same approach, banning anyone born in 2008 or after from purchasing cigarettes. The government advisor has also proposed a doubling current tobacco tax by 2024, as well as expanding the city's uh, non-smoking areas to cover taxi and bus stands And after 9.15. With the return of the Rugby Sevens after a three-and-a-half-year break, we'll be talking about the development of the sport in Hong Kong. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233-88266. And we're now joined by two guests, uh, Dr Judith Mackay, Honorary Professor at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health and a Senior Policy Advisor to the World Health Organization. And also on the line, Daniel Ho, an Associate Professor at Hong Kong U's School of Public Health. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, perhaps uh, uh, Judith Mackay, if we could come to you first. Hello, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so is this the right way to go, this idea of creating a, a smoke-free generation? Well, I think it's one of a numbers of ways to go. I mean, it's not just the be-all and end-all for our moving forward on tobacco control. There are other really important issues, such as the whole taxation business, because we know that it is a fiscal measure. It's, it's actually raising the tax that really is a key to prevent young people smoking. So I wouldn't like listeners to think that really this policy on a, on a tobacco-free generation is the one and only way to go. But countries are looking at this, and they're trying to really protect young people until they get to their mid-20s, when they're unlikely to start smoking. And the countries are really looking at embracing what is a relatively new policy, first suggested in Singapore about um, almost 10 years ago now. Mm. Uh, right, yeah, I suppose, as you say, it is a relatively new policy. I suppose that's why there's a lot of uh, attention on it at the moment. Uh, as, as we mentioned, uh, New Zealand have introduced this. Um, Hong Kong's thinking about it. Would you, I mean, is that a, a measure that you would support? Oh, yes, I think so, because we have had bans on smoking before a certain age. Some countries take 20, 18, some take 16. Countries around the world, many of them have a ban on sales to minors. But what we have found is that this is not enough. We need much more stringent policies, stricter policies, and more comprehensive policies to try and prevent young people smoking. So a smoke-free generation is an idea that takes the idea of preventing young people smoking really forward. Yes, I would embrace it. But at the same time, I would also um, ask everybody to remember that we need a lot more things done. And Hong Kong has committed to a decrease of smoking prevalence by 2025 of 7.8%. So in order to get there, we've got to be more robust in our policies as we move forward. Uh, good, good morning, Judith. This is Mike Rouse. Good morning, um, Mike. I just wanted to ask, I mean, I smoked in my youth, but I think all four of my children haven't. And I'm totally on board with your efforts to steer young people away from smoking. Is there just a danger, and I ask this with good intent, that this will glamorise it just a little bit and tempt some people, oh, well, I'll do it because the adults don't want me to. Well, Mike, you're sort of very typical of what has happened regarding smoking patterns over the decades. That you, men started smoking about 100 years ago, followed by women. Um, and it was the middle class that first started smoking, and it's the middle class 
um, that has first declined in smoking. So you find nowadays that very few professional men and women and very few young people who are going on to university will smoke. The problem now is that it has gone down, if you can call it gone down, but it's gone down to the poorest and the most deprived. So you see people smoking on building sites, but you don't see them smoking in the universities. And it's those people who perhaps have less understanding, less education. We have less access to them in terms of uh, tobacco control policies that Hong Kong is really concerned about. So I don't think it's draconian in any sense. I think it's simply a sensible public health measure. And all governments are required to look after the public health of their citizens in myriad ways across the whole spectrum from safety on the roads to taking dangerous chemicals out of factories. It's the government responsibility to do this. And it's the same with smoking. So I think sort of banning smoking across the board amongst young people, I think will certainly help. But at the moment, of course, it's not an official government policy here. It's a proposal by the Council of Health, mm-hmm. um, the Hong Kong Council of Health. It's supported by the health professionals. So, I mean, when we're looking at really having debates about this and moving forward on this over the next year or two. Well, let's bring in uh, Daniel Ho, who's uh, an associate professor at the School of Public Health at uh, Hong Kong U. Good morning to you. Morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, uh, would you uh, go along with what Judith Mackay is saying there? This is uh, this would be useful as one measure of uh, tobacco control. Yes, any any, any measures, any, any new and uh, traditional measures that can help us uh, move the, towards the. Uh, the end game of uh, tobacco control uh, would be useful. And that was only one of them, uh, although it is uh, a bit uh, new to most people that were raising the interest. And I should say that uh, uh, COSH, uh, the Hong Kong Council on Smoking and Health, uh, actually proposed a charter on tobacco end game uh, in March this year uh, with 11 uh, measures uh, formally suggested. Uh, and that uh, the first one actually is to substantially increase the tobacco test and then with uh, yearly uh, increases uh, 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 from some from uh, in the future mm. so uh, so we really need to do something uh, because the government has set the uh, the target of seven point eight percent as Judith mentioned uh, by two to five and we do not if we do not do anything. Um, that is effective, uh, we're not going to meet that target. Right. Professor, I want, I'd love to come to you, back to you, and also Judith as well, on this question of tax. Um, now, it's, it seems an obvious thing, provided enforcement is effective. Um, the, the problem there is that every time there's been a substantial increase in tobacco tax in the past, it's been followed by a, a, a growth, a spurt, in, in smuggling. Um, what can we do about that? Perhaps, Mike, if I could come in on that. Yes. That actually is a misconception perpetrated by the tobacco industry. Right. Our own head of customs here has quite categorically said, um, in front of LegCo, in fact, that there is no connection between tax increases and the increase of smuggling in Hong Kong. But the tobacco industry, this is one of their main lines that they perpetrate around the world that if you put up tax, you will increase smuggling. And this just simply is not true. And I think um, governments and ministries of finance need to really understand that. 
that um, a tax increase is the best thing we can do to protect our children. And I think I'd also like to pick up on what Daniel said about the end game, because this is, again, another new concept in tobacco control, that, um, you know, prior to about 10 years ago, we slogged on year by year, asking for tax increases, asking for laws. And then in Finland in 2010, um, the ex-prime minister suggested, well, why don't you set a target? Now, public health has noticeably failed in setting targets over the decades, but you wouldn't find a business person in Hong Kong who would run a business without targets. And public health is just learning to do the same. So this idea of an end game based on the game of chess, which is, you know, the, the final sort of tactical move towards winning um, was adopted in uh, Finland in 2010. And about 40 countries have now ad adopted this idea of an end game. And most of these are government targets like we have in Hong Kong. Um, and it refers to a smoking prevalence down as far as 5%. Um, and this really is very good because it gives us confidence that this epidemic can be beaten. It focuses governments on strategies to reach that target. And we have an orderly plan of action. In other words, it takes four months of our lives every year prior to a budget to try and get year by year a tax increase. It's a terrible slog. Whereas if you've got um, an end game with a roadmap, then you've got a much more uh, comprehensive and, and a way to go forward on all of this. And again, as I said, 40 countries have now adopted end game targets. Right. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. But on this issue of the tax increase, I've spent a long time in finance branch in the government, and that was always a consideration for us. First of all, there's revenue. If it's as clear-cut as this, that it doesn't lead to an increase in smuggling, what's, why doesn't the government just double the tax immediately? I think that's a question we've been asking with every single budget, um, you know, for the last three decades, practically. <laughs> but it's a win-win situation. It, the government earn more money from it, um, and the number of smokers, youth in particular, the number of smokers goes down. And, of course, there's all the other things, like smoke-free areas and bans on advertising and help with quitting. But tax stands out as being the single most important thing that governments can do in terms of youth smoking. And if you can get young people to the age of about 23 and 24, when their frontal lobes and their brains are fully developed and they are more able to make long-term sort of decisions um, and sort of for their future, if you can get them to the age of 24 and 25, then people really don't start smoking after that. So, sorry, just to clarify, by uh, end game, uh, we're talking about, Did you, you mentioned a figure of 5%? Yes. Okay, and that's a that is a, a realistic target. Is it not possible um, to get it b below five percent, lower than that? It certainly could be, and that's again the eventual goal. But I think not every country is really ready to take on a five percent target. Some still have male smoking rates up at about sixty percent. I mean, unthinkable for us in Hong Kong because we have actually got our prevalence down into single figures. We've become one of the very few countries in the world to do that. I would say there's only four or five countries that have really got their smoking prevalence down to such low levels. So I think we have done well. Countries have adopted 5% in general. Some have adopted a little bit higher, some um, perhaps a little bit lower. So it's a general figure. But um, an end game of 5% now because 
of some of the countries with huge smoking rates will never get to there within the next few years. WHO has introduced a target, and its target is specific for every country to get smoking down by a certain percent by 2025. And that number is the 7.8 that we're looking at in Hong Kong. It's a WHO figure. And, of course, we follow the WHO guidelines um, in terms of tobacco control. And this 7.8% was the figure mentioned by uh, John Lee in his uh, policy address last month. 7.8% yes. by, by 2025. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Daniel Ho, uh, what would you say would be the biggest factor in reducing the smoking rate? I mean, would it be uh, doubling the tax on, on uh, tobacco? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so this, this is uh, very much the consensus uh, uh, among people who who, uh, who concern about tobacco control in Hong Kong. Uh, and this is also to follow the WHO's guideline, uh, which said that the tobacco test should constitute about 75% of the price of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, the, the test uh, is $38 per pack, mm -hmm. and with the pack of cigarettes uh, costing $63, mm -hmm. uh, the, the percentage of tests is about, uh, is about uh, 60%. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. If we increase the test by 100%, making it $76 uh, per pack, uh, and the price of cigarettes would be about $100, uh, that would make the test about 75%, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, close to... Uh, the recommendation. Mm. I think both uh, Japan and the mainland have very large tobacco industries, don't they? Uh, yeah, we very large, yes. Mm. The, the largest in the world, actually. Mm. What about the argument that by doing so, by making cigarettes $100 a pack, essentially uh, it's the poor that are going to uh, have a problem with that? Although, Judith Mackay, you were saying that, um, I mean, it's basically that less well-off people who, who tend to smoke these days anyway, rather than the sort of middle or higher-income people. Well, the Asian Development Bank supports these tax increases and measures for non-communicable diseases in general on the basis that if we don't do something now, we'll have much, much higher expenses in the future as a country and as an employer and, in fact, as an individual, that those costs will go up and up and up unless we bring it down. And interestingly enough, the Asian Development Bank actually say that these measures, these tax measures, support the poor because they, it actually encourages them to really quit smoking. And that, of course, is definitely a decision uh, for the betterment of their own health. So it is supported by, um, you know, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, all the fiscal institutions around the world have really taken on board that taxation is, is really a very good measure for public health. And in fact, it might apply for other things as well, like alcohol and fast foods and things like that too. But we know it best in tobacco because we have been, you know, working on this tax issue for much longer than um, in the other industries. How do we get young people to not want to smoke? Well, I think health education in schools has actually not been as helpful as we might wish because traditionally what they teach young people is if you smoke, you'll die at 70 of cancer or you'll die at 60 of a heart attack. <laughs> right. Now, you know, if you're 11 years old, then that's pretty meaningless. So I think we need to have much more robust and different health education on tobacco. We need to explain to young people how they are targeted and manipulated by the tobacco industry into starting smoking. And we need to get them to see that smoking is... is 
not smoking is cool. At the moment, the only the main difference between young people who don't smoke or won't smoke and those who go on to smoke is nothing to do with their health knowledge. It's actually to do with whether they think it's a dirty, expensive habit or whether they think it's cool to smoke. And that's the image right. that we need to turn around, and that's what Kosh is trying to do. How about our pop stars, then, or our sports stars? Are they doing enough? Um, I think as role models, they could do more. Um, I think, um, you know, we've just seen in the last few days how popular sport is in Hong Kong, and what an absolutely wonderful seventh we had. It was joyous and joyful um, mm. to just see Hong Kong enjoy itself. It would be really nice if our Hong Kong rugby team, for example, could all stand up. And I mean, to do the sport they do, they surely must be non-smokers. It would be absolutely wonderful to get every one of them to endorse the no-smoking message. That would have a fantastic impact on young people, especially if they announced it at the stadium. I know you're a rugby fan, fan Mike, as am I. <laughs> Um, but uh, no, I think we do need to get far more role models and um, get across the idea that it's trendy not to smoke. Right, especially the whole team stood arm in arm and said, "You saw us at the at the stadium, and we for you know we don't smoke." Let's um, do it. Let's try and do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A couple of messages from uh, from listeners. So on our Facebook, uh, Sailor Saki writes, uh, doubling the tobacco tax will be an effective measure, but the tax revenue... Uh, should go directly into improving the public health care system. Um, best would be strengthening and widening preventive health care system by using the additional tax revenue to issue health vouchers for covering medical service costs. Current waiting times for specialist appointments in public health care are years. The target uh, should be weeks at most, and the additional revenue from tobacco and alcohol tax should be added to fund improvements and also um, an email uh, from uh, actually from James Middleton of uh, Clear the Air um, making a number of points here says uh, uh, while the level of uh, female smoking in Hong Kong is ultra low at about 2% the male smoking rate at 18% is higher than many Western countries. Um, is that do, 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 does that tally with uh, with your understanding, uh, Professor Ho? The the difference in male and female smoking rates here. Well, the the, the smoking rate that we're talking about, nine point five percent. Actually, of course, is an overall figure. Mm. And and in Hong Kong and in many places in Asia, including China, there's a big difference in the male and female smoking rates. And yes, so so that that's a big difference. And and the nine point five percent. Uh, tend to uh, give us a, a uh, more than the uh, comfortable the figure for the uh, for the males in Hong Kong. Actually, they are still quite high, uh, higher than the uh, overall rate in, say, Australia. Although our although our percent is lower than theirs, but our male smoking rate is uh, higher than uh, in Australia. Mm. Yes. Uh, and of course, uh, cigarettes in Australia are very expensive, aren't they? Uh, Twenty-six uh, US dollars, mm. uh, so more than two hundred dollars, hundred dollars per pack. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we have a lot of room to increase if we uh, compare with Australia, mm -hmm. and uh, especially uh, the the last time Hong Kong has substantially increased tobacco tax was in two thousand one. Uh, when there was a 42% increase 
there was another increase in 2014, uh, by just 12%, but uh, that was really not very effective, of course. Mm. So we do need uh, a substantial increase quickly, uh, hopefully uh, in the next financial the budget, uh, uh, by 100% first, and then more increase in sub- uh, subsequent mm. years. Mm. What is the smoking rate among men in Australia? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. I, I, uh, I'm not sure whether I'm updated. Uh, last time, I, it seems to me about 14% is higher than in Hong Kong. Uh, but the males and females, the rates are similar, unlike mm. in Hong Kong. Uh, there's a big gap in Hong Kong. Right. It, 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 that seems to suggest that very expensive cigarettes is not working to deter the men from smoking. Well, why, why was that? I think, I think uh, it, it would have an effect if, uh, if the cigarettes in, in Australia is not that, that expensive, I, I, I believe uh, the smoking rate there would be higher. Mm. Uh, but in Australia, there are other issues, like um, they turn to um, uh, roll their own cigarettes, uh, which is uh, cheaper. Uh, they also have the problem of e-cigarettes now. Uh, and luckily, uh, we have banned it in Hong Kong um, uh, just this year. And this is also very important for our youngsters because uh, very few of them are interested in uh, using cigarettes, but uh, many are attracted by uh, the designs and flavors of uh, e-cigarettes and uh, heated tobacco products. Actually, uh, yeah, James Middleton in his uh, email says uh, the excise and taxation in excess of inflation should match Australia uh, where a packet of cigarettes uh, sorry, it's the printer, there's a couple of words missing, I think that, I think the words would be packet of cigarettes costs about $240 um, uh, this will prevent youth smoking without uh, replacement smokers, the industry will die out um, says so uh, step number one ban nicotine, step number two stop kids smoking and it concludes uh, addiction is not a personal choice um, how about that is, is, um, I mean would there be a way of uh, banning nicotine or uh, I mean you know nic- nicotine is part of the tobacco isn't it I mean c- could, you, yeah. could you introduce uh, nicotine free um, cigarettes for instance well, certainly the, in the U.S. they have been talking about uh, very, very low nicotine uh, cigarettes mm-hmm. uh, to uh, non-addictive levels. And that would help uh, uh, weaning uh, people off nicotine effectively mm-hmm. if uh, they can be uh, uh, implemented. Mm-hmm. So, yes, of course, why not? Uh, so nicotine is uh, highly addictive. Uh, so people, uh, once they get hooked, uh, would be very difficult to to uh, get rid of it. Mm. How about that, Dr. Mackay? Mm. Uh, introduce yeah, a limit on the amount of nicotine and then gradually reduce it. Well, it's an interesting idea. Again, one new idea that has emerged recently because it is nicotine that smokers smoke for. They don't smoke for the tar. They smoke for the nicotine. And as Daniel has said, that is the addictive ingredient in cigarettes. Um, I have to say I've never yet met an adult smoker who, um, when you speak to them quite seriously about it, doesn't wish that they were non-smokers. They want to be free of this very expensive and very addictive habit. They know it's harming their health. They don't want their children to smoke. They want to be free of it. So um, some countries are addressing this 
um, and one of the ways they're addressing it is to try and take nicotine out of just com- normal combustible cigarettes, reduce it perhaps gradually so that there is less need, there's less urge, there's less addiction of, of um, uh, smokers wanting to smoke. That's another tool in the armamentarium. And I know New Zealand are looking at this at the moment. And, uh, and as Daniel said, in the USA as well, of taking nicotine down to really almost minuscule levels so that the desire to smoke, the addictive desire, should I say, the addictive desire to smoke um, is no more. So there's many things we still need to do, but we have a long way to go. And Certainly to answer Mike's question earlier about, you know, why isn't Australia down to almost nothing in terms of smoking? There is no quick fix in smoking at all, in smoking reduction. Um, There's absolutely no quick fix. If you get your percentage of smokers down by 1% a year, you're doing pretty well. And that's what we've done in Hong Kong, I have to say, over the years. Since the 1970s we've been at it, we actually have reduced the smoking rate substantially. But I also lecture at the universities here, the Masters of Public Health students, and I say to them, if you want a career in tobacco in the future, you've got a lifelong job because the number of smokers in the world is going up for the next until 2040 at least simply because the world population is going to be increasing. So even if we bring the percentages down, the number of smokers is going up, and we still have our job cut out for us for certainly the next quarter century. Mm, That sort of puts it in uh, perspective uh, somewhat. But um, uh, thanks very much. We're going to take a short break. We'll continue the discussion after the 9 o'clock news summary. Um, Do stay with us. If you want to join the conversation, our Facebook is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233-88266. I do have a, a couple of more uh, emails which I'll uh, read out when we uh, return. As I say, at uh, three minutes uh, past, a quick look uh, at the weather. Mainly cloudy today, one or two rain patches in the morning, bright periods during the day with a top temperature around 24 degrees, moderate to northeasterly winds, occasionally fresh offshore. The outlook becoming fine with daytime temperatures rising in the next few days. It's currently 21 degrees, humidity 87%. Welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about uh, tobacco control measures. Um, this coming uh, from an idea by the Council on Smoking and Health that uh, residents born in 2009 or after should be banned from buying cigarettes by 2027. It's an idea that's been tried uh, elsewhere. Uh, New Zealand has already adopted a similar measure, plus other uh, tobacco control measures we're talking about, like uh, tax on on cigarettes, um, uh, banning smoking in more uh, areas than currently. And we have uh, two guests with us, uh, Judith Mackay, Honorary Professor at Hong Kong University's School of Public Health and uh, Senior Policy Advisor to the World Health Organization. And uh, Daniel Ho, Associate Professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Um, a couple of messages uh, here from uh, listeners... Uh, Bob writes, uh, listening to this morning's discussion, there's considerable irony comparing the government's tentative approach to reducing smoking compared to the focus on a high level of vaccinations and other anti-COVID measures to protect the vulnerable 
And uh, David writes, uh, it all revolves around money and jobs. Just ban smoking. End of story. Um, Judith Mackay, is that is that feasible? I mean, could we just introduce a, a blanket ban on smoking and have done with it? It's quite difficult. If you look at what happened in the USA some years ago when they banned alcohol, it just simply led to crime oh. and corruption. Prohibition. And the, yeah. yeah, there yeah, was prohibition. prohibition era. Yeah. So I think most public health people feel that's not quite the route to go. We don't want to... Um, criminalise a significant proportion of our population and certainly in countries where up to half of men smoke it's unfeasible to actually make it an illegal activity and to um, um, all the problems that that might bring so most public health people feel that we need to go for a, a smorgasbord of all these measures together to just to sort of bring it down bit by bit but particularly trying to stop the young people smoking which brings us back to the sort of title of this morning's topic. So I think that um, the, the um, I think that's not really quite the best way to go. And with other things like um, sort of food and, and alcohol and salt, there's not really been the idea of banning a particular product. It would be lovely if we could, but I think it would cause uh, quite a lot of public um, unrest and dissent. So I think we just stick by the policy of, of pushing it down year by year with sort of stronger and more robust measures all the time. And as to the first question, I could not agree more. I mean, we have had whole pages of the newspapers, whole, whole, art, whole articles, um, whole radio programs and television programs devoted to COVID, whereas, you know, the, the tobacco, the constant annual deaths from tobacco are really very much in the background. If the South China Morning Post gave us a page on tobacco every day and said what the death rates were around the world and what the death rates were in Hong Kong, it would certainly raise awareness most. But the problem is it is a background um, problem, but it certainly is still a very real one. So I agree with them completely. If we've been making steady progress or not good enough and we want to do better, can I ask a double-barrelled question, um, maybe a little provocatively? What is the tobacco industry doing to fight back against the health progress we've been making? And is there anything that they could usefully do? Um, what have they been doing to fight back? I think we could devote a year's programme to that, Mike. <laughs> they've, been, <laughs> they've been obstructing tobacco control at every single level. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even in Hong Kong, when we recently passed the ban on new forms of tobacco, they fought this tooth and nail. In fact, one veteran legislator said to me he had never seen any lobbying of LegCo ever to the extent that they fought against the ban on e-cigarettes. And not just health lobbying, lobbying across the board. He said it was intense what they were subjected to by the tobacco industry to try and prevent our ban going through. So what they do all the time is to, of course, sell and promote and advertise their cigarettes. They promote themselves as health partners. They've tried to develop, for example, a vaccine for COVID and wanting to sit at the table with WHO and other international organizations. They um, have often denied previously the health evidence, now the economic evidence. They threaten governments with lawsuits when Australia introduced it's plain packaging a few years ago. They got three legal challenges. One, a sort of local one under the Constitution, one under a bilateral trade agreement with Hong Kong, and one through the World Trade Organization. So, as I said, at every single turn, our 
enemy. It's not just the lethargy of government, although I think that is there, not wanting to interfere with personal behaviour, etc., the lack of enthusiasm and the lack of, of action by the medical profession. There's many reasons that tobacco control is not top of this list. But the tobacco industry is our single most important opposition to getting any of these things through. And they bring in the heavies, their PR people, their lawyers, to try and challenge governments. And the Hong Kong government has uh, commendably stood up to those challenges in terms of getting e-cigarettes banned. But you can imagine governments in Laos and Cambodia. This is very formidable, having lawyers coming in and having public relations people and the industry itself. So the tobacco industry, and, and in fact, it's governments. It's not just the NGOs and academia who can expose this, but it's governments that have got to take action against this tobacco industry interference. And in fact, there now is an annual or biannual publication of Tobacco Industry Interference Index where they link, they rank countries from one down to the bottom as to how well or badly they have done in resisting that kind of commercial determinants of health. And it's got so bad that WHO has just, in fact, created a department within WHO in Geneva which is on commercial determinants of health, realizing that public health is in jeopardy because of those commercial determinants. Mm. Oh. Is there anything you could steer them to do <coughs> in the right direction, in inverted commas? Well, in 1984 in Hong Kong, when I moved from clinical hospital medicine into preventive health, tobacco control, I thought for about a week, maybe I can work with these people. And it was absolutely evident I couldn't. They are required to sell cigarettes. They're required by their shareholders to sell cigarettes. And in public health, we are... Our mission is to actually reduce this. And there really, I think, is no meeting ground at all. I'm, afraid. I'm sorry to say that, right. but that's certainly been my experience. You can persuade okay. them to reduce mm -hmm. voluntarily the level of nicotine? Well, I can persuade people to do a lot of things, Mike, but okay. I cannot persuade the tobacco industry to behave um, yeah. in the interests of public health. That's the bottom line. Okay. All right. Uh, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Dennis, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, um, go I was a smoker and I then quit for 15 years and uh, totally no issues with that after the three days of getting the nicotine out of the system, 72 hours. Then it was plain sailing after many attempts and then unfortunately, uh, 15 years later, I was surrounded by cigar smokers and I decided that I could have one and unfortunately got re-addicted through that occasional cigar habit and then I turned to vaping which as far as I am aware is 97% less dangerous chemicals in it than traditional cigarettes and that kind of worked and then I, I discovered that a lot of people that did turn to vaping they could gradually reduce the nicotine levels and quit vaping without going through the cold turkey treatment. And there's been huge amount of people that have been upset that vaping has been banned. And there's also a lot of suspicion that tobacco companies are funding um, anti-vaping lobbies and so forth. Um, and there probably is uh, an element that younger people do want to try vaping but probably the same element that wanted to try having a cigarette too. Mm. So the, uh, another point is that nicotine in itself, according to what I can see online, um, 
it's not it's addictive, but not necessarily highly dangerous compared to the tar that's in the cigarettes. In mm. fact, you might if you if you actually search benefits of nicotine, there are quite a number of them. Mm. But I'm not denying it's highly addictive. My point chatting here is that is vaping that bad and could vaping be a solution without all the dangerous chemicals that are in cigarettes? Okay, okay. Should we put that one to uh, Professor Ho? Well, uh, the e-cigarettes uh, are new products. Um, so it is uh, the first time that uh, many people have tried to uh, vaporize by heating uh, liquid, by heating chemicals uh, into gas form and to, uh, to inhale uh, into the lungs. Uh, those chemicals, uh, usually the addictives and the flavors, are considered to be safe uh, if they are taken by mouth, uh, but not by uh, into the lungs. So the long-term effect uh, is really unknown uh, because uh, in the case of cigarette smoking, it uh, took us uh, decades to, to find out how lethal and the diseases that they can cause. Uh, so we will not say that uh, as the tobacco companies have uh, claimed that it is 95% less harmful. Uh, and before, just before uh, Hong Kong has banned e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products uh, totally, uh, so there's another law in Hong Kong uh, that said that uh, all products, uh, including nicotine, uh, uh, apart from tobacco, the, must be uh, licensed uh, before they can uh, be sold in Hong Kong. Uh, so therefore, in the past, no e-cigarettes uh, have got this uh, license, and none of them have applied for it. So, anyway. um, you can go into a chemist and buy nicotine chewing gum. Is this, is this licensed? Yeah, so, so this, 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 this is different. This is allowed, right? Uh, some of them, uh, you can get it over the counter. Uh, some of them uh, has to get prescriptions. Uh, so um, could we doctors. say that this nicotine chewing gum is not dangerous? Uh, nicotine itself, uh, because those nicotine replacement products, uh, actually, the only ingredient is uh, nicotine. But in e-cigarettes, uh, there are thousands of chemicals in it, uh, which is not in the, uh, the gums that, that you mentioned. Mm. How about uh, uh, Judith Mackay, would you recommend anybody trying to uh, quit smoking to uh, try... Uh, nicotine chewing gum, as was suggested there? Well, the reality is that 75% of smokers who quit do so on their own. Mm. I mean, it's, a, it's interestingly enough, a third do it without any problem quitting, a third find it a bit hard going, and a third find it really difficult. And I think the, the wisdom of quitting is that it often also takes two, three, four, five attempts to quit. So the sort of the slogan for that is if you try and quit and don't make it don't give up because you know try a few times but it does show the addictive nature of nicotine mm. and just coming back to e-cigarettes and there's 95 percent cigarettes less addictive less less dangerous this was produced by public health england in the very very early days of e-cigarettes getting on the market and what they did was to only look at the, some of the measurable toxins in e-cigarettes and, and, and 
combustible tobacco and say that e-cigarettes had 95% of some of these really toxic effect of, um, ingredients. But what they did not do was to look firstly at all the other ingredients in e-cigarettes, some new, some not in cigarettes. They didn't look at those. And also they never looked at the social science. They didn't look at the way that e-cigarettes could be a gateway for young people starting smoking. They didn't have any evidence, although they claimed that it helped smokers quit. And in population terms, it doesn't seem to. It seems to move smokers more to a dual use of e-cigarettes and combustible cigarettes rather than quitting. So our focus must still surely be on quitting. And the fact it's renormalizing in many countries, renormalizing tobacco use, is bringing with it the advertising that we haven't seen for 40 years in many countries. And, you know, we banned it on the basis that if you let this genie out of the bottle with all these unknowns, unknown harm, unknown ingredients, unknown effects in so many ways, that if we let the genie out of the bottle, we can simply never get it back in. So I think there was a lot of logic in banning it. So you see it as a door in, not a door out. Correct. Mm -hmm. That's right. In fact, in fact, in the UK, they've looked at the number of young people who start using the product compared to the number of smokers who quit. And it's a graph with a thin, thin line and, uh, for the number of smokers who quit, but a very big line, a big line on the graph for young people who take up the habit. Yes. So, uh, Dennis, were you able to quit again after trying alternatives? Uh, uh, well, I mean, the first time I successfully quit, it came about after reading a book. Am I allowed to say the author? Yeah, sure. uh, it was uh, Stop Smoking the Easy Way with Alan Carr, and mm -hmm. he encourages you to keep smoking while reading oh, yes. the book mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. develop this epiphany. Of, and it was quite true that it had a hypnotic effect and you couldn't wait. You were so eager to stop smoking. And he, he let you know that you're going to go three days through three, 72 hours of hellish withdrawal symptoms. And then you will imagine this kind of snake in your system that is dying when you feed it less nicotine. And after 72 hours, this is gone. And it was highly successful and he went on to get people off heroin and uh, other other drugs with this similar method and he was enormously successful. Mm, yeah. And uh, that, that's how that's how I did it. Um, but to, I, I, I still have a nicotine addiction that I support. But this is a case of getting into the frame of mind to get back into this some time aside knowing that you're going to go through three days of serious withdrawal and dedicating yourself to it and then and, and then coming off and it, it will it will work and getting rid of the habit as well so to answer your question yes but i was curious about the views on vaping but they make sense Okay. Well, okay. okay. All right. Well. Uh, okay. Well. Thanks very much uh, for your call, um, Dennis. Um, we're going to uh, just wrap this up uh, in just a moment because we're going to move on to talk about the the rugby sevens uh, for the last uh, ten minutes or so of uh, the program. Um, can I just um, um, ask you both uh, quickly if you can just uh, remain with us for a moment longer? So, uh, so the chief executives promised uh, a consultation on further tobacco control measures uh, starting in the new year. Um, what are the main uh, what are the main measures that you would like to see, Judith Mackay? Hello, 
Judith. Hello, yes. yes I have yes. to come back to taxation. Okay. Um, Posh yeah. had a seminar a couple of years ago with eight international specialists on the stage, and they were asked a question, what's the one most important thing you recommend Hong Kong do in terms of tobacco control? And one after the other, one to eight of them, said one word, and that word was tax. Mm, right, okay. And, and Daniel Ho? Yes, uh, test again, uh, but also we need to uh, look at uh, the influence of the tobacco industry. They really should not be uh, liaising with our lawmakers and officials. Uh, we should ban it. Mm, okay. All right. Well, thank you both uh, very much for taking part uh, in the programme this morning. Uh, that was uh, Daniel Ho, Associate Professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. And thanks very much to Dr. Judith Mackay, Honorary Professor at uh, Hong Kong News School of Public Health and Senior Policy Advisor to the World Health Organization. As uh, promised uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the programme this morning, we're going to be uh, uh, looking back at the, at the uh, spectacular event over the weekend, the Rugby Sevens, and I'm looking forward to the developments of the game in Hong Kong as well. Uh, we're joined now on the line by Nathan Solia, who's a fitness and rugby coach and, uh, and a regular contributor uh, to Radio 3, on, um, mostly on Noreen. Mayor's uh, The Brunch programme. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. So, uh, you celebrating this morning? I'm feeling a little bit worse for wear. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was great. It was fantastic to be able to get the first sevens in the last three years going mm. again. So, mm. and um, well, I was there all over the weekend and it was just, you know, it was a, a, a great celebratory um, uh, uh, atmosphere. Mm, yeah, and, 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 and a great final as well, of course. Uh, you know, congratulations to Australia. Oh, 2017 against Fiji. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. considering Fiji have won it for the last five years before mm -hmm. that, I mm -hmm. think it was nice to have someone win it other mm -hmm. than Fiji. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Nathan, sure, how, sure. how do we get more of our young people to play rugby? Um, so, this is, uh, you know, the, the great thing about rugby is, is that you know, I've been playing rugby since I was since I was ten years old, and what I've seen with rugby is is that it's got an amazing balance between foot and and hand skills, and we need to, um, you know, we want to be able to expose a lot of people to rugby, but of course, a lot of people are a little scared because, of course, of the contact. But what we also have is touch rugby as well, which is a great way of being able to get kids to, um, you know, try out rugby without the contact. And generally with rugby, from the age of five until nine, you are playing touch rugby. And then after nine, then we start incorporating, you know, tackle into it. So starting them young is a good way of being able to get them into rugby. And that way you can, you know, grade them into it. Now, that being said, there is a lot of kids that have just started up for rugby for the first time this year that were in the older groups with tackle. And I've seen, you know, a few coming from other sports like judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those sort of martial arts where there's a little bit of, you know, um, you know, lack of a better word, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, but the thing about rugby that I, you know, and I don't know how much it is with other clubs is, is that... It is a great way of building a community, and there are so many there are so many carryovers from, you know, being a leader, following the team, 
team sports. I was even reading an article on, you know, the, the, the top CEOs in the world all play team sports. And so rugby has that. It has that real great, you know, I will back you up, you will back me up in the tackle or, or, or playing rugby. So to answer your question, how do we get more people into rugby? We've just got to really just spread the word and make sure that we can, you know, get people to try the game out, especially in schools. Right. It's interesting you say that because I know there's one uh, girls' school, a secondary school in Hong Kong, a local school is so keen on uh, team sports, famous for it, right? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention the name of the school. Yes, I am. Heap Yun. <laughs> it's Heap Yun School in uh, Tokawan. Um, that what steered them towards rugby was when it became an Olympic event. And they said, yes. oh, right, an Olympic event. Well, we've got to do that then. And then they uh, started teaching the girls to play. So uh, that sends a signal, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know also, and just on the girls thing, is now that sports, uh, there's a lot more televised lady sports now. Um, rugby is now becoming one of those sports that um, they're offering scholarships in the U.S. Yes. So now what these schools, these, these universities are trying to attract high-quality rugby players. And we've got two girls in our club that are now playing um, who've got a scholarship in the U.S. Well, that's, for playing rugby. I, I think that's a very clear signal. Is there something, Article 7 or Article 9 or something? Under American legislation, the, the universities, if they're doing something for men, they have to do it for women as well. That's right, they do. And they're, they're oversubscribed for the men. So right. the women are, you know, they're really searching to get the women, you know, involved in sports. And rugby, you know, in the U.S. is a great, um, you know, fallback for people who have played American football because it has, you know, a correlation to, to right. rugby as well. So the, the uh, what is it called, the... Um, um, the major league, major league rugby competition. Yep, that's building really huge in the U.S. And so I see that you know in Hong Kong, especially with you know with with the local community, I see Hong Kong really being able to make rugby more of a local sport as opposed to as a part, as opposed to in the past has been more of an expat sport. Right. So I would love to be able to get more locals involved and, you know, and how we will do that, like I said, is being able to spread the word, um, making sure that there's a correlation between the communication, not only in English, but also in, in Cantonese as well. Maybe, the, as you touched on it already, emphasising the team sport aspect. I, so many of my children played rugby and it, it changes them that one minute they're sort of an individual um, doing their best in different things, but the next minute suddenly they've got this concept of of working together, and and sharing defeat and sharing victory, and it moulds their personality in what I can only say is very positive ways. Can we get that um, over to the parents? Well, the, the the parents, you know, as our club is is a voluntary basis, right? So we have to get the parents involved. Very different to other sports, you know, like I know with soccer with my son, is, is, you know, you pay a lot of money for these kids to be in soccer, but, you know, the, the parents are very hand-off. Whereas our club, we've got, you know, people right across the board from, obviously, from the chairman all the way down to um, uh, team managers and, and coaches for the teams 
and they're all voluntary. And so we also have a, um, um, a, a head coach that is able to teach all of the, the, um, the, the parents how to coach. And I think it's really good because now all of a sudden you're not just sitting on the sideline being a bystander. You're now involved in the, in, in the development of your own child's physical ability. So it's, it's really inclusive. And that's what I love about, you know, the rugby in Hong Kong. It's, it's so inclusive that, you know, everyone has to pitch in and, and, and help out. And you mentioned something before. It's like, you know, you know, having that teamwork. It's not just about being individuals. Obviously, there's people in the team that are really good. But there's also, you know, you, you cannot win the team. You cannot win a game just by one person. You have to play as a unit. And, and, and teaching them how to win and how to lose <laughs> it's 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 harder to teach someone to you know to teach someone how to lose um, than it is to win, right? So being able to build these principles into look, you know, this is how we want to be perceived, whether we win or whether we lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting what you say about uh, reaching out to the local community as well, because I know that the, the Hong Kong Rugby Union and their CEO Robbie McRobbie are very very active in uh, the community uh, do you uh, have you sort of witnessed an, an expansion of the game among uh, you know among uh, local people uh, you know is it coming to be less thought of as an expatriate sport and uh, a more of an inclusive thing yeah that's that's a really great question we we went from when we first had um, when we opened on in on the 5th of September, we had 126 players in our mini section. Mm. Now we've gone up to 260 in the space of time. And a lot of those people are locals, um, you know, even from mainland China as well. Uh, and, you know, in, in the, 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 the expats that are coming, we're starting to get, you know, the, 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 the groups from different sports coming in. So, yeah, I've seen a shift. And there's so many more clubs that are local clubs now. I was coaching yesterday and I was talking to a little boy and he didn't understand I was saying to you I was speaking in English. And he was looking at me going, I can't speak English very well. But that was that was a perfect opportunity. I thought, you know, this is where we can bridge that gap between, you know, speaking Cantonese and speaking English, where the kids get to learn not only English, but also we get to learn Cantonese too. Great. Okay. Well, thanks very much for for your time uh, this morning, uh, Nathan. Always uh, good to talk to you. That's uh, Nathan Solia, uh, fitness uh, and rugby coach. And thank you to uh, all of our listeners, everybody who wrote in. Um, Thanks very much uh, to you again, Mike. And congratulations to Robbie McRobbie. Exactly. Um, I sent him my personal regards on on Saturday. I think he's done a terrific job for Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. It was a great uh, weekend, actually.